Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Joining us today is a globally recognized expert on mega trends and how to build companies that thrive by serving people and our planet. He is one of the most widely read writers on sustainable businesses in the world with regular columns in the Harvard Business Review and the MIT Sloan Management Review. His latest book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, co-authored with the renowned CEO, Paul Pullman, was recognized as one of Financial Times' best business books of the year. His first book, Green to Gold, which he co-authored with Daniel Esty, has reached more than 100,000 people in seven languages. Inc. Magazine included Green to Gold on its all-time list of 30 books that every manager should own. And his book, The Big Pivot, was selected as one of the best business books by Strategy and Business Magazine. Our guest is also the author of the Harvard Business Review Magazine cover story, The Net Positive Manifesto, and the HBR Big Idea cover story, Leading a New Era of Climate Action. And this is how I learned about our guest, whose ideas inspired me and my own company, The Colony Group, to adopt our own net positive pledge. Our guest views on strategy have been sought after by many of the world's leading companies, including 3M, DuPont, HP, J&J, Kimberly-Clark, Marriott, PepsiCo, PwC, and Unilever. He was selected for the Thinkers 50 list of the top management thinkers in the world. He has appeared in major media such as Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, Time, Business Week, The New York Times, and CNBC. He has spoken on five continents, bringing his inspiration to leadership meetings of the top executives of multinationals to large industry conferences and to high-profile events like the World Innovation Forum and TED. His work is based on significant business experience and education, as his early career included advising companies on corporate strategy while at Boston Consulting Group 
and while holding management positions in strategy and marketing at Time Warner and MTV. He received his BA in economics from Princeton, an MBA from Columbia, and a Master of Environmental Management degree from Yale. Please welcome the extraordinary Andrew Winston. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. That was quite a quite an overview of my background. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, one thing we specialize in this show is people who have done extraordinary things with their lives. And so I'm used to speaking with guests like you who have done just extraordinary things. That's kind. Andrew, I, I of course, want to get right into your life's work as soon as possible. And, and I'm really curious to have this conversation with you. But let's start with you telling us first about how you personally got to where you are today. Was there something or someone in your life that directed you toward your passions around sustainability and net positive? How did it all start for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I tell this story kind of half tongue in cheek, I guess, about the the change in my career that came came from being unemployed. I always think these big moments in life where there's huge changes in the economy and people are in flux is when people find new direction. And mine came after the dot-com crash if you're old enough to remember in 2000. I and mean. yeah, I, I had been in the media business. I was at Time Warner and Viacom and went to a dot-com and the crash happened like within weeks of me getting there. And so I found myself free and was starting to look for the kinds of jobs I had had before in strategy and marketing and other things and realized it just didn't feel right. And I had had this interest kind of growing in, in the environment, but really more in a kind of practical way about resources and was just reading more and more. I was a vegetarian at that point and just thinking there's something wrong with the way the whole system works. It just doesn't seem like we can keep going. And I just had this basic understanding without having the language. And I just started asking around and heard this word sustainable and found out there were people who had thought about sustainability and business. And I was like, well, this is what I should be able to do. I have an MBA. I should be able to combine these two things. And the way you asked the question about where did this passion come from? I don't know. I didn't grow up a huge environmentalist. We weren't like out camping and hiking a lot, but my parents raised us with, I think, empathy and compassion and kind of a big picture view of the world. We weren't activists in any way, but it just seemed to come naturally. And so I kind of took a right turn. I went back to school, got a degree in environmental management and started working with this professor there and wrote this book. And it kind of kicked off my whole career in this realm. I, I thought I'd probably just go back into business and do a strategy role, but with sustainability in some way. There weren't that many roles like that then, but there were some. But then people started asking for my opinion and, and I just started having an independent career, speaking and writing and consulting on my own and found it fit me much better. I just, I never really loved being in big companies. I love working with them and the influence they have, but in it was just, I don't know, it just didn't, didn't fit right. And I, again, I didn't have the language early on, but I knew the things I was rebelling against were a lack of purpose. The things that are much more common to talk about now in business. I just, that's what was bothering me in the past is being companies that maybe just were just focused on the bottom line and weren't thinking about something larger. And I wanted that. So that's, that's kind of how I got here. And then people ask me, how do I get your kind of career? And I always half joke, well, you start by writing a bestseller. And I'm not really kidding because I don't know why anybody would pay me to speak just because they, I feel like it. Right. So there is something about, you have to have something to say. You have to have a reason to, to be brought in, to be listened to. And I think either it's, Someone like me who's been thinking about a lot of things, studying a lot of things, has something hopefully interesting to say, or they've done something really amazing, right? The, the, the people you want to listen to because they've accomplished something 
climb, literally climbed a mountain or climbed some figurative mountain and, and you want to hear how they did that. And so I think it, you need a reason to, to, to be listened to. We're going to get into it, but I would suggest to you that bravery is, is another thing that is required, at least for what you do, since as you have pointed out in your book and elsewhere, this is my word, not yours, but it's a bit, it's a bit of heresy to, to talk about companies going beyond simply producing profit for shareholders. And, yeah. and I'm, I have to believe you've been heavily criticized over the years for, <laughs> uh, for these views. Yeah, I kind of sit nowhere. I mean, it's funny you say heresy because my previous book from a while ago now, but 2014, it first came out. I asked the question, what's your heresy? It's really this huh. word I latched onto, actually. And it's funny because I'm not a very religious guy. And I, I knew it had this heretic religious meaning, but it really just had the more practical meaning to me about like what just questions the very nature of everything. What do you take for granted? And yes, the, the main heresy that I focus on is that, I guess, is that business has one sole purpose, which is to profit maximize in the short run. And yeah, you take criticism in a way, if you're in this world of business and sustainability, you're in a weird Venn diagram. That's not as big as I would have thought. It's getting bigger, the overlap, but you're neither here nor there. To the business, I'm you know, some hippie and to the serious environmentalists, I'm kind of a business sellout. So it is a, it is a, a no man's land in, in yeah. some ways, but that's my job is to translate, I hope, is to link these two worlds that are more connected than they want to realize. All right. So before we get into to net positive, let's set, set the stage a bit. And going back to your bio, I mentioned that you are an expert on megatrends. So could you give us some examples of today's megatrends and in particular megatrends that are pertinent to the conversation that we're going to have regarding net positive? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll just kind of list them fairly quickly and we can dig into them. But there's the kind of existential threat to the world type stuff. And, and the two that I've always focused on or that my co-author and I focused on in net positive are climate change and inequality. And we can kind of dig into why those are the two overarching ones, but they threaten kind of the physical well-being and I think societal cohesion. Inequality is really kind of tearing us apart. And it's gotten much worse. There are kind of technological megatrends. There's obviously AI. I mean, if you've played around with chat GPT, it mm -hmm. frankly, it freaks me out. Yeah. It's kind of amazing, but it's, it's scary. But the technology that I spend more of my time on is the clean technology world. So the radical change in availability and cost of renewable energy and batteries in particular for electric vehicles has just been unbelievable. And then there's just mega trends in kind of stakeholder pressure, the investor world caring about what they call ESG and asking questions, the demand from businesses on each other to, to have more to say on environmental and social issues. And I think basically customer slash employee demand from young people. Those are the huge stakeholder demands, and it's all kind of accelerated or emphasized by the, the mega trend of transparency, just the desire to know what's in every product, where it came from, who made it, and the data that's allowing that. So those are, the, those are the really big ones that I talk about and the ones that are, I think, really driving the deep change in, in business and why the sustainability movement, I think, is with all the politicization going on, which we can talk about, is kind of not above it, but is will continue anyways, because those trends, they're just, they're too big. They're too powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The politicization is definitely a topic that we need to address because I will tell you that has been a challenge for us as we have adopted the, the net positive pledge. But why don't we, why don't we talk now about 
this idea of being net positive. Yep. Uh, so you wrote a book about it. You've written articles about it. You, this is this is your concept. I'm I'm personally a big fan of it. Tell us what it means. Yeah, the, the simple answer is that a net positive business is one that profits and grows, and we include those words purposely that it is a successful business by solving the world's problems, not causing them. And the core question we ask is, is the world better off because your business is in it? That really, it gets people to pause a little bit and really think about that. And and how that plays out is the company improves the well-being of everybody that they touch throughout their value chain, their suppliers, their customers. And well-being is the broader word, right? It isn't it has a lot of dimensions to it. So it's really taking a, a bigger role in society and, and helping improve the world. Yeah. We, we like this concept of giving more to the world than we take. And uh, that's the way that we, which are your words, but that's, that's a, a, a way that we think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that a lot. I, I could see some businesses saying, well, sure, the world is better because we're in it because we employ a bunch of people and those people are making a living because of our business. But it really takes more than that, doesn't it? You you say that a, a net positive company improves the lives of everyone it touches, not just employees, but customers, suppliers, communities, and also at the same time, shareholders. And this is the, the stakeholder model. You hear sometimes from companies, hey, we pay taxes, we employ people. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's obviously a contribution. You might under, I mean, there's companies that undermine that very contribution by trying to pay no taxes, by the way. And we talk about that in the book is you can't really be net positive. If you, if you pay no taxes, you're not actually contributing to society in that way. And yes, you employ people, but you know, people can, can work in a lot of ways. And that doesn't, that doesn't tell what your purpose is. What are you doing for the world? They could do things that make the world worse. Right. And it doesn't encompass all the ways that your business impacts the world, including positively. But there's so much in business that comes from, and the way our economy works, from what's called externalities, meaning we take from the world, we take sometimes raw materials, the clean air, the water, without paying for any of it. And then we impose an economic cost by maybe making that worse, increasing pollution. And that's a that's a free ride, really, right? So I think if you want to take full account of your impacts, you got to look at the the benefits you're creating and the costs. And it's not easy to get that exact, but you can you can get it in pretty broad terms. And the people side is absolutely real. But then there's a broader question about the well being of your employees. Are they are they doing well enough? Are they paid a living wage? What's their mental health like? What are the wages like upstream in your supply chain? Are people making enough to live? These are the, the bigger questions yeah. and increasingly you're being asked to answer them. That's just the reality of business today. One of the things that, uh, that I've struggled with as I speak to people at our company, but also in our communities and in our industry is, is, is what is the, the underlying source of, of wanting to be net positive? And is it, is, it, is it founded on this concept of promoting sustainability? Is it just good business? Or is it just about a, a certain set of values? And of course, maybe the answer is all three. How, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I mean, it is all three. It, it kind of has to be on some level. I think any good, look, any, anything that kind of lasts in life, I think has some balance, right? I mean, if you're extreme in one way or the other, I think it's, it's difficult. So it is, it is all three. I think it, 
it comes from a place of, of sure doing the right thing. I think that should be critical. I, I get asked all the time, well, what's, what's the case beyond doing the right thing as if doing the right thing isn't a value in and of itself. (laughs) I mean, if you think about how I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I've thought about it for years, but think about how backwards we have it that you say, well, a business of course just should make money. And if it causes problems, fine, but you know, it, it's okay if it also does good instead of flipping that entirely, which is, are you doing the right thing? And then who's doing that the best and can make the most money at it is really probably the way for a more functional society. But, and also to have the values that people want to have in, in the workplace. And look, they have to go together. That's, that's not saying that everything, I'm not saying everything you do under the banner of sustainability instantly saves money is instantly valuable. I think in the long run, Almost everything you do for sustainability does create value because it keeps the world thriving and your business thriving. But there are expenses. There are trade-offs. I find the obsession with that in sustainability always kind of odd because people ask, well, does it pay or doesn't it always cost more? And the reason I find it odd is everything in business costs more, more than not spending, right? I mean, if you're doing marketing, you're hiring people, you're doing R&D, it all costs money. It's a question of where do you invest? What's the mix of your investments? And it's honestly, it's only often things called sustainability that you get pressure about why does it cost anything? I, I, you don't get that about anything else. You would never say we're doing this new campaign. Yeah, does it cost money? Like, it's because there's this base assumption that, well, it must just be about doing good so it can't have any business value as if those two, thing, right. two things aren't connected, that doing good doesn't create business value, doesn't create brand value. Of course it does, right? So they're, they're connected. They have to be. So for the the people that are climate change deniers or the people that we're about to speak about that just see all of this as political and 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 just don't believe in it your book basically suggests that well maybe we just need to move past those people and work with people that that do see these things as important but if if you were to make just the pure business case what's the pure business case for the people that just want to hear about this being good business Well, look, I've made the business case for 20 years. My first book, as you said, was called Green to Gold. It was an incredibly unsubtle title on purpose. Green turns into gold. I saw met many executives. Well, I like that. That makes sense. The, the basic business case, and there's many people who've made this over years, but the, the basic one we make there and that I still use frameworks from today is that there's kind of four big buckets of value, value creation in general. Like companies are fundamentally every day, you're doing things that if they don't destroy value, they are reducing cost, reducing risk, or they're driving the upside, increasing revenue, you're selling more, you're innovating, or brand value. And people write off brand value or intangible value, but broadly speaking, for like the S&P 500, 85 to 90% of the market cap of those companies is actually intangible. It's not value on the books. Intangible is actually most value if you're not in the big physical asset world. So you can cut costs by reducing energy use, reducing water use. You can reduce risk. I think we've seen a lot of risk in recent years from the pandemic, from extreme weather. Your supply chain can be at risk. So you can reduce risk by managing that. And that's very helpful for more steady earnings for what CFOs want is the, re- the re- reduction of risk of those earnings. You can innovate as most sectors now have demand for sustainable products and services. So are you innovating? Are you creating those? I mean, if you're not making, if you're a car company, you're, you're not making electric vehicles and moving into it heavily, you, you don't have revenue in a, in a short time period. And then there's, again, there's brand value and that can mean a lot of things. It's 
customer loyalty and retention. It's employee attraction and retention. It's what they call license to operate. Like does society or does a community want you? All of these are direct value to the business. Intangible is real. We just don't measure it very well. None of these are what's good for the, the owls. I, so, but let me just step back and say, because I literally just, I get this question. I've had it for 20 years. I literally just filled out a question for some a media company in Europe. And one question was, why should a business care about the earth? And I almost laugh. That was literally the question because I have, to, I can't believe I have to say this out loud, but we are part of the earth. We actually rely on it. And so that's what I wrote. I just said, well, literally everything around us in our society was either grown, harvested, or dug up from the earth. Pretty much everything, right? It's the only thing new that comes in is sun every, every day. And so, yeah, we rely on it completely. And if we, it's like asking, like, why should I care about my house, right? And if pieces of it are burning down, why should I care? It's, it's so fundamental and basic. It's like the old story of two fish are swimming and an old fish swims by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they swim on and one of the other fish says, what's water? But we take it. It's just one of those things we take for granted. It's around us, but it, it is not forever. It's not infinite. Right, it's a bunch of resources, and we have to take care of them because it's our business and it's our society. So it's weird to have to say that out loud, honestly. But we say in the book, and it's one of Paul Pullman, my co-author's favorite phrases: "There's there's no healthy people on an unhealthy planet." Right, and and I think we have to kind of realize that, and you can see it in our health. Our health isn't that great, right? There's a lot of air air pollution related health problems, asthma, even heart disease, a lot of toxic pollution, plastics, and things in our body that make us less healthy, it, it is affecting us, right? It's affecting our immune systems. It's, I think, why there's so many more allergies than there used to be when, when we were young. It's just, it is, it's in the air, literally. It's in the air and water. So uh, the big why is because we live on this ball and we, we yeah. probably need to take care of it. You mentioned Paul Pullman. So how did you connect with him? I mean, look, I've known Paul. He's one of the, the people I've admired for many years. He's the CEO, I think, that's gotten the most praise probably as a big company CEO and, and took on sustainability in a deep way when he took over Unilever in, in 2009. I was on the advisory board. I do advisory boards for large companies. I was on Unilever's board in, in North America. They had so much going on. They actually had kind of South America and outside of America. Most companies just have one of these boards. And so I knew him a little bit from that. He was obviously the boss of the U.S. head of the business. And I met him. He read my previous books. He like had bought the previous one for his top staff. So I met him a few times, but he and his right-hand guy, a guy named Jeff Seabright, who's just one of the most knowledgeable sustainability guys out there. They approached me in late kind of 2019, or right, not long before the pandemic started and just said, asking Paul now that he's left quasi-retired from Unilever to do other things, to write a book, to tell the story. How do we do this? And he is not a writer. That's not what he wants to do or what he thinks he does. And so they were looking for a partner, someone who they thought knew the stuff and could have his own view and, and write and kind of bring out and synthesize the story. So that was me. And they approached me. And it's funny, I didn't say yes right away immediately because I don't know how to run a 50 billion euro revenue company like he does. There's many things he does, but I know what a book takes. I've learned that. And I knew I was signing up for years, a real choice about my time, right? And my career. And it would have been dumb not to, but I needed to kind of think about my priorities, right? And okay, where do I fit this in now? And it was a lot of work. And we 
got lucky in a weird way that we started finally, we agreed and finally started just talking like right at the beginning of 2020. And we met live once in early March and then everything shut down. And then we were just talking on the phone every, every week, two, three hours and writing. So I got this weird ability to write the book for a year and a half because all my speaking travel disappeared. There was some virtual, right? But everything stopped. So it kind of worked out. It was a weird, odd, odd timing thing. But, I, you know, I'm really glad, obviously, I did it. I learned a lot from speaking to him about a field that I'm considered one of the experts in. There were still really interesting perspectives from him, a couple things that changed my thinking somewhat. And I think I had some influence on him on the storytelling side of it on, on, yeah, how do you talk about this? How do you, I mean, he's speaks all over the world, but he's the CEO, right? It wasn't his point to be a storyteller necessarily. He's good at it, but that wasn't necessarily his, his purpose. Did you know Ray Anderson as well? I did. I, he was, so the, my, I, when I talked about getting into this field, when I took that right turn and said, what someone said, sustainability, someone said, Hey, you should read this book. And it was Ray Anderson's book. And he, he talked in there about this spear in the chest moment he had where he had read another book. And so I read that one, which was Paul Hawkins book, the ecology of commerce, which is 30 years old now. And it, they were really good. They were about business than the environment, right. And how we're a part of it, all the stuff that we're saying now kind of more commonly, there were people saying it early on. I did meet him later in his life. I think he died about 10, 12 years ago, maybe. And so I was really glad to, to get to know him and, and just speak at a few things that he spoke at and kind of see his passion. It was just so natural. He came at this, if people don't know him, he ran interface flooring and carpeting a very, he realized a very industrial, it's made from petrochemicals, carpet, it's nylon, it's glue, it's a bunch of things. And he was asked to speak at something and say what his environmental plan was. And he had no idea what that meant. And so someone handed him, one of his staff, a guy I know, handed him Paul Hawkins book and it just changed his life. And so it's funny because I went down the same path. I read his, I read Paul's, I read a couple others and just had this couple weeks in early 2001 that just changed my, my worldview. I think there's, there's people who they read something and they kind of can't unread it. It's just more, it kind of gets into their soul. And that, that really happened, clearly happened for him. And it really happened for me. And Interface is one of the leading lights. I mean, they've been working on this for 25, yeah. 30 years and doing a pretty damn good job of it. They're not as well known as they should be. I've always said when the annals of CEOs are celebrated, I wish we'd stop celebrating the Jack Welches of the world that were cut and slash and burn and celebrate Paul and celebrate Ray. Yeah. The guys who are like, how do we operate within the planet? That's the biggest question of our species. And yeah. they're doing I saw a, a documentary about, about Ray Anderson and, and he talks about the moment that he realized that, that his, his carpets were going to be, if you put them in a landfill, a hundred years later, they'd be the exact same. And, and he realized what he was doing. And it, it's, it's a great documentary. It speaks to that whole journey. And he was an extraordinary human being. Yeah, he was. So, so I have to believe that you experience what I often experience when I talk about our own company's pledge to be net positive. And what I experience is lots of optimism and excitement, but also lots of concern about politicization and even being woke. I hear that more mm. and more. And, and what's been your experience around that? I, I, I have to believe you've had a similar experience. Yeah. I mean, look, I, 
I mean, obviously I follow politics as well. I've written about this recently. I I had an article in Harvard Business Review recently about companies pushing back on anti-ESG. Anti-ESG actually means a few different things. There's people who are anti-ESG because they don't think the the banks or the companies providing ESG funds are actually being honest. They're actually sustainability people who are anti-ESG. I meant the anti-ESG slash anti-woke, right? So should companies respond to this? Well, look, the reason companies and governments and society are going down this path of making the world more sustainable, looking at things like climate change, looking at human rights, equality, is actually not a cabal sitting in a room somewhere of liberals with a, with a plot. It's actually driven by these megatrends, right? You're, we're tackling climate change because it's not a model to debate anymore. It's happening. It's costing real money. Cities are looking at the, the waters rising, the days becoming too hot often in the year to work outside, to live. It's happening, right? And the pressure from younger generations to care about these issues is real. So I just, I just keep pointing companies to the fact that they're going to battle this stuff publicly about whether they're being woke, but they still have to do these things because it's just the world and they have to act on these things because it's part of their supply chain. It's part of what their customers want. The investors are asking. So it's happening. And actually the good news from my perspective as a sustainability advocate is that I don't actually see companies slowing down that much because of the political pressure. They are doing what's some call green hushing instead of green washing. They're being quiet at times and still going about maybe cutting their carbon footprint, but just being quieter about it so they don't raise too many questions. And that's fine. I really care about the outcomes, right? I mean, climate change is a real problem. I want to see real solutions. So I think that's part of what's happening. I don't see that many companies slowing down because of this. And so it does put business in a weird position. And this is what I just wrote about recently because self-identified, the CEOs of like the Fortune 500 or something, or the C-suite, like about 70% are self-identified Republicans, not moderates. Just So they're, they're at odds with a very powerful arm of their own party that's attacking things that they have now publicly said they believe is in the interest of business. So it's leading to some weird moments, right? So you've got some state attorneys general and legislatures trying to regulate that and investors can't invest in ESG funds. And you're now getting pushback there's something called like the Indiana Bankers Association. Now, I don't think this is a progressive liberal organization normally. I think we can agree. And they're pushing back and lobbying against that kind of rule because they want to offer and invest in ESG because there's demand for it from their customers. And this, again, is separate from is their ESG fund legitimate? Is it really helping the world? That's, a, that's the other anti-ESG. Like, is it greenwashing? That's a separate problem, and it's a real one. I'm just pointing out that in the banking business, they are feeling customer demand for this, however we define it. And so if there's anything that ever has beaten out politicization, it's it's the economy, it's money. So I kind of feel like the money is on is now on the side of sustainability, right? Renewables, clean economy is cheaper. People want investments in this. So I think it's just going to continue. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. And we're going to see the end of the anti-woke rhetoric. It's going to continue. We're going into a presidential season. It's going to keep going, get, get hotter. But companies just have to stand firm, to show some yeah. courage, right? And just not, not get into the debate unless there's something really at stake. And I think on some of these issues, there is. Like 
fundamental rights, right? There's a tax on the gay and trans community going on legally. And I believe companies need to stand up. And I think a lot of them are, right? These are just fundamental civil rights things. Like we saw with the black community, 60 civil rights, women vote, anti-slavery. It goes, but there's always a civil rights battle going on and it makes people uncomfortable, but it goes in one direction, right? It's more freedom to be, to be who you are. So there are a few topics that I really believe companies need to stand up. Diversity and inclusion is one of them. Um, They've been attacked for that lately. I think you saw the governor and others said that the failure of the Silicon Valley bank was because of their diversity efforts, which is just, I mean, that's, I'm sorry, that is just ludicrous. I don't care where you are politically. That is the weirdest statement. What could it possibly have to do with the failure of the bank? They weren't so distracted by hiring some minorities that it affected their ratio in their bank. I mean, it's a ludicrous statement. So it's become this, this football, right? I just want companies to push back and say, we're doing diversity inclusion because it's good for getting more talent and for speaking to communities that we're selling to, right? The world is diverse and inclusive. So I don't know it's a long version yeah. without defining woke for you. I think we, that's a separate debate, but I just think companies are going to keep going because the, the, the mega trends are there and it's just better business. But to be clear, you don't, believe that this is Democrats versus Republicans. I understand that that's certainly part of the debate, but but that it, it really is something that can be seen as bipartisan. I'll tell you, Andrew, when I get in front of our company and talk about this, or when I get in front of others in the industry, I always feel the need, right or wrong, to to start by saying that I'm I'm generally a centrist, that I'm actually a political independent, I'm not a member of either party, but I believe in these things. I did take your, you have a, a little quiz on your website, I believe. And I did take that. And I think I got one of them wrong because it asked about like making political, bold political statements. And I said something about, well, not because I, I want to make sure that our company sees this not as a partisan initiative, but rather as something that's not political. Maybe you're saying that's not really possible though. Well, I, I, I but yes, all of the aspects of, of, of what makes sustainability good for business are non-political. It's apartisan. It doesn't matter. I mean, bipartisan always implies that you need the okay of a political party on both sides to do anything. I'm saying it's it's apolitical. That's not that's not saying you don't need government. We need policy, okay. right? You need the kinds of investments in the clean economy, price on carbon. These things are policies. What I'm saying is then once you turn on that lens of like, well, what policies do we need? It is factual that like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest climate investment bill, it is factual that it was passed on party lines. That is not a statement. I actually don't tell people my political party. They probably guess. I mean, I, yeah, I guess there's, an, there's certainly an alignment right now. We have to remember that in the U.S., and this is not true everywhere, it is a very U.S. thing. The political parties have aligned tribally, and one tribe, the GOP, has decided that climate action is not fitting their their tribal brand. I don't believe that every member of the GOP doesn't believe we should do something on climate change. I know that's not true. I know mm-hmm. people that work on policy, work in government, they talk to Republicans all the time. But in my view, until they vote for things that act on climate, it doesn't matter if they say they are, right? So we are right now divided on actual votes, right? Actual state legislatures, which states are passing more investment in the clean economy. I think we're seeing some breakdown on that because like nine of the 10 
states that have the most going on in clean economy and like growth of renewables are red states, right? Because it's, again, apolitical, right? Wind is where wind is, right? West Texas, Iowa, like these are geographic things. It happens to overlap with red. So you see these weird mixes, I think, on something like renewable energy. There's increasingly support because this is a, it's becoming a huge part of the economy, right? And you've seen some bipartisan efforts in coastal areas like Southern Florida locally, like local Republicans deal with the fact that the waters are rising. They're not denying that. But there's a difference between local, state, local, state, and national. Very different things going on, right? And you cannot be a national figure, a senator, someone running for president, and as a Republican and say, I want to do something on climate. You just can't, right? You're not going to get through the primary. So I don't see why that's partisan to point that out. So if you believe in policies that will act on climate right now, your partners are Democrats and any Republicans you can get to swing. I just haven't seen any. If it happens, great. So I, I don't know if that's really answering your question. I just think we have to be realistic about where this comes from. And the anti-woke attack using those words is coming from the right. Like I said, there's another anti-ESG, which is calling BS on the banks, on people saying they're doing sustainable sustainability and saying that's greenwashing they tend to be on the left right it's not coming from the politicians exactly right but it's coming from more left-leaning groups and organizations environmental groups right so there's also a difference of where the locus of energy and talk is and where it's coming from and one side it's coming from actual politicians and the other it's not as organized as that right it's much it's much broader and there's people who really are against ESG from that more liberal progressive side, but for very different reasons, right? They don't, they think it's valuable to do sustainability and think it's the right thing. They just think companies are full of it. Also valuable pressure, I think. So I don't know. I mean, look, I don't want to, I never try to turn off listeners, but I have to be honest about if we're trying to solve a problem, you got to be honest about where it's coming from. And the political problem on some of these issues is, is coming from one place. So on climate in particular, I think it's been very, very clear. So I appreciate your candor and, and maybe just pushing that, that discussion further to include, but perhaps go beyond politics. You, you've quoted BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink on, on, on this overall subject. And the quote is stakeholder capitalism is not about politics. It is not a social or ideological agenda. It is not woke. It is capitalism driven by mutually beneficial relationships between you and the employees, customers, suppliers, and communities your company relies on to prosper. So, Andrew, the question for you is, you are a capitalist, correct? You're just a stakeholder capitalist? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, capitalism isn't a party, really, an identification. No, that's but, what I'm saying. We, yeah. we're, going, we're moving beyond politics now. I mean, look, I, I have an economics degree from Princeton, and I have an MBA from Columbia. I wasn't taught um, socialism <laughs> and those, whatever that means. I mean, socialism has many different means. Look, I believe capitalism is a tool like, like any other. There are some very deep flaws with it, mainly not in its design necessarily in, in how it's used. Meaning people will come up to me and say, I believe in free markets. I'm like, yeah, but to have a free market, things have to be priced. And it goes back to those externalities. You can't have a market that manages the impacts of carbon and how much goods and services should be made to solve carbon problems or create pollution, but maybe that's worth it because it creates other goods. If you don't price it, right? We don't have a price on carbon, on water, 
on non-living wages. Like we don't, we don't price these things. If we do, and I think that is happening, not just through regulation, but almost de facto by companies asking their suppliers, what's your carbon footprint? It puts a price in essence on how's your carbon footprint going, right? Because if you're not doing well, you're not going to get the business. So yeah, I'm happy to use capitalism and markets when we use them in their full, their full capacity. BlackRock is really interesting because Larry Fink, he's the perfect example of taking heat from, from both of those sides. I, I hate the phrase both sides. Again, going back to what I was saying before, they're not, the sides aren't equivalent. They're not coming from similar places, but I guess ideologically, yes, he's gotten a lot of heat from the anti-woke folks and from the, hey, you're greenwashing, you don't really mean it. So it's been unpleasant for him, but his statement that he made last year, and he's been, he, his, his annual statement to CEOs, which is where this quote came from last year, this year was much more circumspect. It was kind of quieter about ESG. He's again, kind of going the green hushing thing. But what he said was pretty much in line with my philosophy, which is, it is capitalism. It is like the idea that satisfying stakeholders is somehow against shareholder value is actually really strange. And it's, it only makes sense in the very short run, right? If it, the real problem is short versus long run thinking, because in the long run, I've seen many people who are stake, who are shareholder advocates say this in the long run and even medium run, if you're not satisfying your customers, how much shareholder value is there? If you're not attracting and retaining talent, how much value could you be creating? So of course you have to deal with shareholders and stakeholders. And lots of companies have said this publicly. Of course we deal with stakeholders. It's really about what's the priority when? Is it always one stakeholder? And do you sacrifice not only the value to share to stakeholders, but to future shareholders by maximizing shareholder profit today? Which I think the evidence is really clear, right? We invest in R&D less in this country and in business than we used to. That's purely from short-term profit focus. So we're sacrificing the future. Excuse me. I think I, I think I got to the answer of that entirely. <laughs> Are you familiar with the work of Martin Reeves? You, you were at BCG and Martin Reeves is a, is a, one, one of my, my favorite reads from, I've done some Ted talks too, yeah. from, from, from BCG. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. I mean, we, I, I know him and I, I'm on, as a BCG alum, I get emails about his podcast and stuff and, and Paul and I were on when the book came out. So we've, and I've seen a lot, I've listened to some of his other stuff. He, he brings on interesting people. So yeah, I, I know who he is. Yeah. Are you familiar with this concept of embeddedness? No, I saw you ask me that question ahead of time and I, I realized I didn't know too much about it. Yes. I mean, so he's got this really fascinating, he wrote an article, but also he did a, a TED talk on what it takes for a business to be a 100 year business. And of course, that is such a rarity for a business to last for a hundred years is that's extraordinary. And, and he actually says that we should look to the, the sort of the, perf the, the perfection of biological systems, including, for example, a hu human immune system hmm. and look at the characteristics of these systems for guidance as to how companies should behave. And so he speaks about the human immune system and he speaks about concepts like modularity, that if one part of the system goes down, it doesn't hurt the rest of it, right. redundancy, diversity. But he also talks about embeddedness and in this, this general concept that a biological system always understands that it lives within another system and hmm. that if the other system fails, it will fail as well. 
do you think that that's that's you sort of in line with your thinking this concept of that's a business is embedded right. in the earth in the communities around right. it well it's kind of goes back to what i said before about being asked well, why should companies care about earth yeah i mean we're part of a system all of this work on sustainability the more you get into it is really systems thinking and we talk about that in the book a lot it's interesting because in my previous book i have a whole thing about seeking kind of resilience right as kind of the the 10th of these 10 strategies. And I talk about what makes for resilience. It's the same list, really. The diverse diversity of, say, in your supply chain, diverse sources, but in the natural diversity, having some repetition, you know, having kind of a risk tolerance that's kind of got some ups and downs. There's lots of elements. I think it's totally in line. And yeah, I mean, of course, people have pointed this out for years, but nature's pretty good at this. It's used 4.8 billion years of evolution. Nature's better at most things than we are. I mean, they can, we can produce a lot, but you know, the classic example is that spider silk is much stronger than steel and bendy and done at room temperature. Like we can't do any of that, right? That's a kind of classic example. And just the systems work of a forest, you don't have to be a tree hugger to go, wow, that is kind of amazing. And what we're learning more and more about like the mushrooms and all these connections underneath the forest and how it isn't just pure competition at all. It's actually much more connected and we got a lot wrong about Darwin. He wasn't wrong about kind of evolution, but we took away this dog-eat-dog dog survival or the fittest when actually what he said was survival of the fit, not fittest, and it was about adaptation, right? And so natural systems are super resilient because there's a fire. There's actually the kinds of cones that only open, pine cones that only open up once there's a fire, like there's this whole system to it. And I think we have made what some colleagues of mine or mentor of mine has called brittleness, more brittle systems. We saw it during the pandemic, right? We made supply chains that are as efficient as possible. And the cheapest, best way to do something is to make all of something in one place at scale. And we did that with a lot of things like masks and swabs. And then we found out other pieces of supply chains. And when they were down from disease or storms or floods, it screwed up the entire value chain. So this is the problem again with obsessing with short-term profit maximization you make choices that aren't actually in your interest and cost you a lot more later, right? It is more resilient to have multiple sources of supply, which, which is what's happening now, right? Yeah. We are building sources of supply of some of the key metals and components of the clean economy in the US. So we're not relying entirely on one country, China. That creates some trade wars and trade battles, but it's resilient. So look, he's absolutely right, right? We, we are embedded in systems and honestly, the economy is, in, I mean, is embedded in society, which is embedded in the planet. Fundamentally, that's a drawing you'll see regularly. And the planet can do fine without us. I think we have to remember that. George Carlin had a whole bit about this. Like, it'll shake us off like fleas, I think was his, was his statement. We can do some damage, but it'll come back. It'll evolve. New species will evolve. It doesn't need us, right? So this is, I, I, all of sustainability is about, is about human flourishing, right? And we need natural flourishing to do that. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question before we move into our extraordinary teaching segment, yeah. and we'll conclude with that. But I, I, first, I want to just appreciate what you said about Darwin. I say that all the time as well, which is that Darwin never talks about the survival of the fittest. He did actually, he appreciated the, the concept. He, he, someone else came up with it, and he, was, he did appreciate the concept, but, but you're absolutely right. It's all about your ability to adapt to changes around you. And that's what ultimately creates natural selection. 
And another another one of my favorite authors, Stephen Covey. Have you ever read The Seven Habits of, yeah. of Highly Effective yeah, it's People? Cla- it's classic. It is a classic. It is. And, I just uh, read First Things First, which was his follow-up about kind of prioritizing your week and yeah. to getting to the important but not urgent. And so I, for a few weeks, I've been tracking my time just on that kind of lens <sighs> and saying, how am I doing on the getting to the important that isn't urgent? Well, I love the 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 um, the, the, the sort of the, the deeper perspective on first things first, which is as you as you are, are implying one of the seven habits of highly effective people that they put first things first, and 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 I, I think that that is a, a a way to basically just sort of live your life in terms of thinking about what's most important, including your own health. Yeah. I also love the this concept of beginning with the end in mind and thinking about your legacy and, and beginning not a project with the end in mind, but rather beginning the rest of your life with the end in mind and thinking how you'll be remembered. But one of the the overall concepts in the seven habits of highly effective people is this concept of moving from dependence to independence to interdependence and acknowledging that the truly highly effective people are those that can embrace interdependence. Can we think of a lot of what you're talking about as interdependence, this acknowledgement that we're all dependent on each other? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, like I said, it's about systems. It is really acknowledging that interdependence. I mean, what's I think most dangerous right now in our, again, I don't know if it's a political discussion, just in our kind of societal discussion is a lack of empathy. I think that that has become an enormous problem in our society. But this this sense of every man for himself, it's a very American thing in general, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And sure, there's a lot to that. Martin Luther King Jr. once said something about it being, he didn't, this wasn't his word, but something it was like it was awful or it was strange to ask a man to pull himself up by his bootstraps if he has no boots. That, that there's an interdependence that we don't seem to want to admit a lot of the time that on some level, we don't do well unless everyone's doing well. I mean, it's not 100% true. Obviously, you can be super wealthy and, and there can be very poor people, but it's very hard to maintain growth and wealth and well-being growth in the world without more and more people entering the economy, being healthy. That all matters, right? And and we do work together or bring each other down. I mean, a pandemic's the perfect example of that, right? We are We were one immune system for a few years and still. I got COVID again, traveling just a couple of weeks ago, and it's still floating around. Like we are, we're one immune system. We're breathing the same air. I mean, climate change is the, is the kind of perfect, classic, social, across the world issue, which is why it's so hard. It's, one of, it's probably designed, if you designed an issue to be hard to solve, it would be this. It's everywhere. It's everyone's responsibility. Like it's, you can't see it. So yeah, of course we're interdependent. And I think it's been shown in many ways that mental health and well-being are really hard to achieve completely on your own, even for introverts, right? They still need some connection. They still need closeness. I think even some of the anger-driven coalitions that we have now still come from wanting togetherness, right? People finding their their partners in crime and the people that they, they agree with, that that's, that's part of how we extend to the world. What's really dangerous now is the use of social media, Facebook, the algorithms that are bringing us together in strange ways or ways that are lies, propaganda, or or just purposely dividing us for power to get votes, whatever it is. It's really scary in ways that it's weaponized, right? 
Russia has used it for a long time against us. Like this use of data and, and using our interconnection digitally to destroy our human interconnection is remarkably effective and is one of our biggest problems. So we better wake up to the fact that we are in an interconnected system where we're going we're gonna to all go down together. That's the reality. But the other, the flip side is what a great world we can build together, the thriving world. I mean, think about how great it can be if everyone's got enough, people are doing well. Okay, we're going to now move into our extraordinary teaching segment where I will ask you some, some brief questions and, and ask for your brief answers. These are the same questions we ask all of our guests. Seeking the Extraordinary presents Extraordinary Teachings, a deeper look at the qualities that allow people to do extraordinary things. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment in life so far? I think the easy answer, the obvious one is my kids. I'm, I'm pretty proud of them. Two teenage boys. They got their ups and downs, but I'm, I'm proud of what they've done. I think work-wise, it's seeing my books used in school and having people come up to me and saying it affected their career, the direction mm -hmm. they went. That's, that's pretty rewarding because you don't know when you put ideas out, what does it do? Do you have any regrets? I'm sure there's some fewer than I would have thought. I, I hit 50 during the pandemic and had that kind of, wow, even older middle age now. I have fewer than I would have thought, honestly. There's things I wish I had kind of invested in myself or learned earlier, like this sounds silly, but languages. I've been trying to learn Spanish and it's really hard. Learning things at our age is just much harder. I tell my kids, please go learn a language, learn a sport, learning, just stuff you get better when you're young. And I guess I probably, like most, would would pay more attention to my friends. We lose each other a little bit during the kid years, which there's many years and you kind of don't talk to them as much. I wish I kind of had done that differently. What have been your, your best learning opportunities? Some people think of their, 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 their sort of most impactful mistakes in life. Oh, there's plenty. I think when you're uncomfortable, right? When you're, you're not sure, like I said, I got into this career out of unemployment, which didn't feel good. Being in places where you're not the highest or best or smartest in the room. And I think talking to younger people, again, realizing, wow, there's a whole generation below me now that are adults that I should listen to more is, is always a good learning opportunity. Who are your key role models and mentors? I mean, there's a list of famous people I suppose I've always looked up to that I thought were really icons. I always loved Thurgood Marshall for many reasons. I think he was just first... He argued the Brown v. Board decision in front of the Supreme Court, then sure he gets did. to the Supreme Court. I mean, amazing life story. In my field, it's a little easier. It's people like Hunter Lovins, who, who helped create a lot of this field. Working with Paul Hawken, another one, a guy named John Elkington in, in the UK, Jonathan Porritt. I've been in this 20 years, and they've been in it like 40. And I'm, I'm just always amazed they've maintained the energy and positivity in a really long, long battle. So they've, been, they've become mentors as I've gotten to know them. Right, oh, by the way, I should wait. I should also say Paul Pullman, my co-author, because I got to know him well enough to call him a mentor. I didn't really know him well before then. And I have I learned a lot from him on how you treat people, how you be a leader. He's relentlessly positive and he has more connections than anyone I've ever seen. And they're all pretty healthy. It's like it's pretty remarkable. I think I have a sense for the answer, given this discussion, but I'm, I want you to, to give the answer in your own words, of course. Do you have a personal mission? I think it might not be what you think. Okay. It, it would have been easy to say to make businesses sustainable and all that. But as I, again, hit older middle age, I think I realized that my, my mission, and I may not have the perfect words for it, which is ironic when you hear it, 
is to identify the story, the narrative that we're all swimming in that water that the fish don't realize this economic model that we're, we're stuck in to understand that story, to kind of take it down because it's killing us and write a new one to help write a new story. That's, that's the real mission. And perhaps that leads into our last question, which is what do you hope your legacy will be? I, I hope the larger, I guess, idea would be empathy or compassion in both business, a more human-based business, and in my kids, like in the people around me. That's, that's the ultimate legacy, right? It's not how much I made or how many books I sold. It's a rethinking of business around humanity and, and my kids being compassionate and, empath and empathetic. And that is the extraordinary Andrew Winston. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think I'll end this show with a quote from Andrew, and I'm going to take it right out of his book, his net positive book, which I highly recommend. Here's the quote. We will choose our destiny together. We're asking for more trust, more courage, and more humanity. Do you care? Do you have the willpower? Can you find the moral leadership to do what we must? If you join us in this most critical journey to net positive, you may open yourself up to criticism. You'll make mistakes, but the rewards are enormous for you, for your business, which will thrive in a whole new way, and for all of us living together on this spinning imperfect ball. You can learn more about Andrew and his extraordinary work at andrewwinston.com. You can also join me in following Andrew on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Andrew Winston. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit colonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary. Extraordinary.